You are listening to Open Democracy. Thanks everybody for coming. It's great to see so many people here this evening. Um, uh, my name is Daniel Trilling. I'm a journalist and author. I'll be chairing tonight. Um, again, I'd just like to say how pleased we are to be able to have this conversation with Gary. Um, I think Gary probably needs very little introduction, but I will uh, just say again, his collection of uh, his latest book, a collection of his journalism spanning uh, nearly 30 years of work for The Guardian, uh, Nation, New Statesman and other publications is just a real delight to read. Um, I think I mentioned this um, when we were chatting by email the other day, but I think it's quite hard to get a collection of pieces to feel like more than just a kind of roundup of, 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 of individual pieces. But I think what, what really shines out um, from the book is how I think Gary's talent at not only reporting on the here and now, but sort of showing how that fits into the bigger historical and political arcs that um, shape all of our lives and that at certain moments we can actually shape ourselves. You're very good at shifting between or sort of talking to several different audiences at once. I think, you know, sometimes that could be people from Stevenage. Sometimes, even on occasion, it's England football fans. Um, Sometimes it's sort of speaking to like, I don't know, the British professional classes. And sometimes it's about the black diaspora worldwide and sometimes it's black people in the UK. Um, And I think that's like the skill of a, a good journalist is that you can hop between all these different things. But this... Dispatches from the diaspora, you, you've, you've kind of focused on, I don't know if it's a particular group that you have in mind that you're addressing, but certainly a particular like, sort of set of experiences that you wanted to write about with that. So I just wondered if you could start telling us about, well, who is that like we that you're talking about then? And, and like, why, why make this address at this point? Um, so <clears throat> that is in the introduction. And... Um, I think the we that I'm referring to there, there, there are two, actually. There's we as black people are not where we were. Also, and these two things, of course, overlap, we as a society are not where we were, and we're not where we need to be. And when I say uh, we're not where we were, I think it would be, it would dishonour the hard work that lots of people have done over the years to say nothing's changed. And, and it's also, I think, demonstrably untrue in a range of ways things have changed. And they don't change because um, of time and tide or, well, you know, tolerance. or They change because people make them change. And so when I say things, um, we're not where we were, that in a, in a range of ways things have got better, I think. We look at what happened in 2020, if we look at how many people understand what the term institutional racism is, if we look at the number of uh, black anything at significant levels of power and authority, whether it's MPs or councillors, or we are not where we were. And God, compared to what Britain's like when I was growing up in the 70s, thank God, you know, um, then there's another group of people who say, some of whom are actually in the present government, but not all of them, um, who say, like, we, we've arrived, there is no problem. There is, you know, there's nothing to worry about. We are, we're good. That was more or less the Sewell report's conclusion. You know, there's something out there that kind of some people call racism, but basically we're good. And that's also obviously not true. And that people consistently want to look for these kind of cheap fixes or evidence of a cheap fix. So we have a brown prime minister, we have a black foreign secretary, there you go. Like, as though if you were sitting on a plane, handcuffed to, the, to, the, um, to your seat, you'd be like, well, at least it was a brown woman who put this. You know, that is madness. <laughs> And, you know, um, in the book, I interview Angela Davis, and she's talking about the way that Obama's understood, and she talks about diversity, a notion of diversity as being the difference that brings no difference and a change that brings no change. This way of changing the color of things without actually changing what they do. And, um, you know, that's a, a thing that 
I think is very important to resist. That you have these moments where a handful of people break through the glass ceiling, but then there's a lot more people in the basement and they've disabled the lift. So nobody's, nobody's following them. So when I say we're not where we were, uh, but we're nowhere near where we need to be, I'm trying to kind of get a sense of, yes, things have changed, and we are not even close to having arrived at a satisfactory point. And actually, while some things have changed, an awful lot of things haven't changed. There's a, sort of a particular story from the UK that I think really illustrates that, that you can see you've traced over the course of 20 years. Um, the McPherson report, which you, know, you, were, you were writing about at the mm. time in um, you know, the turn of the century, mm. and the Windrush scandal mm. um, almost 20 years later, where I mean, you, you describe in, in, in your piece analysing the Windrush report, you describe it as our Rodney King moment. You know, mm. This is the point at which um, white people, many white people, were forced to realise that racism exists in Britain mm. and is not just about behaviour or people who are uneducated or mm. lower class, or, but it's, it's political mm. and it exists there in the institutions and that uh, black people's experiences of this country are materially different to theirs. Mm. And that that kind of, you know, that, first of all, that, that was the moment that people had to realise that and that kick-started a new kind of conversation. Mm. And then almost 20 years later, you have a scandal that is exposed that in, again illustrates people being treated like that by institutions for structural reasons and so on and then the conversation that ensues is the civil report and mm. pretending either this doesn't exist or it's just the kind of you know the woke left um, mm. extremists and so on how do you think we got kind of from from there to here if you think of the time when the McPherson report happened in 2000 at that time when there may have been one black junior minister and he would have been the first, as opposed to now, where you have a brown prime minister and, the black, and, and all of this. But now we also have Rwanda, and we've had Windrush, and, it's all, and we have photo ID at the polls, which is basically Windrush at the election booth, basically. <laughs> then you, you get a sense of that uneven development. And my understanding of this is that over this period of time, we have managed to clear a lot of political space. Broadly speaking, the conversations that we have around race in this country now are much richer, they're much better, they are much more sophisticated than they were. When somebody like whatever that queenie lady was who's asking, like, yeah, but where are you really from? That now seems incredibly antiquated and, like, just a not particularly sophisticated way to be racist. It's like, lady, update your racism. <laughs> you know, so, um, wh whereas that was kind of, that was bog-standard stuff when, you know, uh, in years gone by. And so, in all sorts of ways, space has been cleared. But we have not been able to build on it. So we have a situation where consciousness is raised, where awareness is raised, where people are more sophisticated, and yet we don't have the institutions to incubate that, uh, and we haven't been able to enshrine that in our politics, particularly. And so we find ourselves having a better conversation and a more sophisticated conversation about a worse situation in a range of ways. In the middle of all of that stretch from kind of 1999 is the McPherson report to 2023, you have the uh, economic crisis, which of course affects black families more severely than other families because they will skew poorer. Uh, you have austerity, where uh, black people are more likely to work in the public sector, so it's gonna hurt them more. Uh, so you have a range of things that have nothing to do immediately with kind of, you know, race particularly, but which affects black families in a particular way. And to be honest, just because, you know, it's a diasporic book, that was even more stark in America when Obama was elected. And when you write now, there's a thing called Below the Line. And that is, you write your piece, and then people come in 
below the line. They also come in below the belt, usually. <laughs> and, um, you know, and you're told, don't look below the line. You know, well, actually, originally you were told, go below the line, kind of talk to people. So, and then you're just like, there's, there's nothing for me down there. Or there will be individual, there'll be some really nice people, but you'll have to wait for a load of racist nonsense to get there. When Obama happened, and I was, and I was saying, symbolically this is fine, but it's not a movement, it's an electoral campaign, it's actually not that much more to the left than Hillary. So we're going to have to kind of find a better way to talk about this. And I was accused by Obama of just being an Eeyore, which I do understand. It's just like, I didn't say this on election night or anything, but just generally, well, you know, oh, come on, just kind of get with it and enjoy it. But that as Obama was standing and winning, the economic crisis hit, and actually African-Americans suffered a massive attack on their living standards. In real time, people were saying, this shows that African-Americans have arrived, and that there's no such thing as racism, as their fate compared to white people was widening. While Obama was in power, the difference between black and white in America in terms of income and wealth grew. I'm not blaming him for that, because the president can only do so much, although I also do think he should be held accountable for what he didn't do, and for a lot of stuff he did do. I think Obama gets a lot of passes, uh, partly because we like him, and only because he's so much better than the guy who went before <laughs> and the guy who came after. So when you're when you're the meat in a shit sandwich like that, it's like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, what you know? What do you want? But um, but you you saw a incredibly uneven moment where the symbols and the substance uh, didn't didn't chime. And I actually felt like in those moments, it was even more important as a commentator to kind of draw those lines and get those distinctions right. Your job is to try and frame them through a prison that you think people uh, might view them. Um, I think that dissonance was even more stark in America. Mm. I think what you're describing there is also kind of it's the disconnect between forms of representation and the kind of social reality out there, like the political representation or who gets picked to do top jobs and, and that kind of thing. Where, where in Britain, you know, it's a country that's very structurally unequal, you know, and these things are getting worse. You know, the government has this alibi at the moment that, you know, well, it, it, I, the Rwanda policy, this can't be racist and it can't be violent because we have a diverse cabinet kind of carrying it out and implementing it. And then at the same time, it's like increasingly loud noise from the right that actually, you know, this kind of, um, I know you said you hated this phrase when we were talking earlier, but like this kind of cultural politics that actually Britain is completely divided and, um, you know, this tiny left-wing extremist mob has taken over and everybody, the, the kind of picture they paint of the country is one where everybody's at each other's throats all the time over mm-hmm. issues like race and culture and gender and so on. Which to me, or when I sort of, when being someone who writes about that a lot, I spend a lot of time immersed in that, and I sort of come out and go to bits of the country and just think this has almost no relation to kind of what happens in daily life. But again, it's in a slightly different way. It's that disconnect between how the kind of political sphere is talking about things and then how people are actually kind of articulating oh, themselves yeah. and, and interacting and so on. Yeah, well, I think this dissonance exists everywhere, and to that extent. I mean, first of all, just to talk about columnists for a moment, like, first of all, there was a study by the Sutton Report about inequality in Britain, and you were more likely to to have gone to Oxbridge and private school if you were a columnist, newspaper columnist, than if you were a lord or a senior judge. That's about as posh as you get. So, so you're talking about this kind of very fetid ecosystem where the people who run the country and the people who write about the people who run the country are basically the same person. And so they kind of, they spin these realities out of, you know, whole cloth. And sometimes they can actually spin something into reality. Not that often, actually. You know, we are, we, we are 
very ill-served by our commentary and the kind of the world that we live in doesn't doesn't feel like that but the world that the demarcation points the fault lines that they create then have you saying you know are you for or against X when kind of nobody's really thinking are they for or against X and that's which is why I don't do punditry because kind of you go you know you go on some bloody show and they're like but Gary isn't this political correctness gone bad <laughs> and you're like I don't know what you're talking about I don't know what that is the other thing about being a columnist specifically and why I was really glad to give it up when I did is because I had to have a thought every Thursday <laughs> whether I wanted one or not <laughs> like I thought on Wednesday, my fucking used to it. And I thought on Fridays, no, yeah, that thought has to come on Thursday. It has to be a thought you haven't exactly had before. Uh, uh, but um, it has to be something that you know about. You only know about so many things. You can't be repeating yourself, but you can't be entirely inconsistent with the other thing. I mean, it's mental. It's a mental idea. And... Um, <laughs> even now because it was on a Thursday and where I live the bins go out on a Wednesday night <laughs> and so I associate putting the bins out <laughs> with thinking what, what, what am I going to do like I'm, what is my thought what is my thought um, so yeah I'm kind of I'm relieved not to have to do that but in terms of in terms of race particularly although not exclusively one of the things I learned in the process of writing these things and going to these different places whether it's Caribbean or Africa like South Africa or Zimbabwe or the States or Britain or elsewhere in Europe is the degree to which racism is a language with several dialects and people speak it differently in different places and, and of course they're not all saying the same thing but the reason that Black Lives Matter could pollinate in the way that it did was because it was recognisable. Same with me too. It was recognisable in enough places. And I, I remember starting the journey to thinking that when I was in South Africa, and that was the piece that got me my job covering Mandela when Mandela was elected. I was 24 when I arrived there. I was 25 by the time the election happened. And I was, the Guardian said, you can stick around like for another few weeks and do more pieces, which would be a dream. Like, I didn't even have a job yet. I was just on contract. But I had this encounter, and it, it wasn't just this encounter, but this encounter kind of summed it up with this, this woman pushed in front of me in a supermarket, just walked right in front of me. And I said, excuse, excuse me, um, there's a queue. I don't, buddy, hey, I don't have much. I won't be long. And I said, well, you're after me, so you'll be that long. <laughs> I don't get done, buddy. I've just got these... And I said, no, sorry, this is... And I don't get hit up. And I said, I'm not getting hit up. Just get behind me. And I just thought, I wasn't in a rush. And why am I shouting at this old white lady? Like, well, now you've got me shouting at this old white lady. I had enough. I had enough people just moving in front of you in queues, being disrespectful. And I just thought, I don't want to learn this language. I understand. I speak British racism fluently. That'll do. I don't want to be bilingual. <laughs> and, um, and so I said to God, I think, I, think I'll, I think I'll come home. And the point there isn't that South African racism is worse than British racism. It's just, it's just different, and I didn't want to. I just didn't want to deal with it. When I left America, which was in the middle of the Black Lives Matter stuff uh, in 2015, and quite a lot of people said, "You know, is that because of the racism?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm coming back to Hackney to avoid racism." <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of crazy idea. Yeah, and actually. Since you mentioned Black Lives Matter there, I think you, you seem to have a very keen eye for the moments where people kind of break through. The, the thing that you're very good at kind of showing happen is when people are kind of collectively saying, actually, we all know this is going on. You know, and, and the way that you write about particularly Black Lives Matter's resurgence in 2020 and the way it went around the world seems to be a very good example of that. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's a 
something you wanted to read a bit, kind of book about, or, or just just reflect on? Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about it for a bit. Okay. The, I was going to read from the Macpherson bit, but that okay. still might make sense because a range of experiences aren't reflected in the mainstream media, then there are these moments when they kind of burst forth. And I'm really keen when I'm writing to think, well, what's different about this? Like, not always where did this come from, because you don't always know where it comes from, it's the truth of it. But what's what's different about this moment? How how do I understand (laughs) this moment as opposed to kind of, you know, another one? And sometimes what's different is that we're talking about it. And what's interesting about Black Lives Matter is that it didn't, it wasn't that more black people were being shot dead by the police. That's not what happened. What happened was the people who decide what news is were forced to reckon with the fact that this probably should be news and that they had been walking over these dead bodies metaphorically for years. And so, you know, so when they ask, where does all this, in other times, where does all this anger come from? And where does all this rage, angry black men, they're shooting us dead in the bloody street. They're killing us having kind of broken taillights. And they've been doing this right under your nose. You have, you have noticed, because, you know, when I, when I did the uh, book about all the kids that were shot dead in one day, people would say, well, reporters would say, it's not so surprising that someone will get shot down there. And so you realise, okay, so there are places where children almost should get shot. If they do get shot there, it doesn't disturb your understanding of how the world works. It confirms it. And then there are places where they shouldn't get shot. Schools, malls, white areas, libraries, wherever, churches. And those, that becomes news because we didn't expect it. And that's one of those things where it's like, well, who's the we there? Because... Actually, the people who live in these communities, they're living with this all the time. So I kind of... Um, um, and that previous book, um, Another Day in the Death of America, is an example where I think I, I did try quite often to take what was the quotidian, the daily, the unnoticed, and to say, you know what, this... Maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this ain't right. Or, you know what, you know this isn't right, and you know it happens. It's just become part of the white noise that you're getting used to, but you wouldn't live with. And it's one area where I think journalism really, really fails. And it fails in no small part because of the class, race, region demographic of the kind of people who become journalists. Yeah. And or allowed to become journalists. And I think that's actually a good point to move to the reading about McPherson because that's another moment at which something that was obvious to people who experienced it was sort of forced into the national conversation. And I think that, that piece in particular for me really kind of nails that like that moment of recognition. So it's called a year of reckoning, and it's a year after the McPherson report comes out. I just actually should say, just in case younger people in the audience aren't immediately yes. familiar with that, the McPherson report was the official inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence, um, a black teenager in 1993, mm-hmm. whose death was not properly investigated by police, and mm-hmm. police are also based on racist assumptions, treated him and his friends like the criminals and led to this finding of institutional racism in the police force, um, in the Metropolitan Police, which then prompted this year of reckoning. Yeah, I mean, basically, everybody knew who did it. And the police, because of their racism, and that's not even a controversial point now, completely bungled the investigation to the extent that the people who everybody knew had done it and who boasted about having done it couldn't be convicted for the crime because they had uh, either failed to follow up on certain leads or failed to keep certain evidence uh, or whatever. Now that the dust has settled and the rubble has been cleared, it's time to check the foundations. 
The Macpherson Report, released a year ago, fell like a bombshell on the British political and cultural landscape into what had appeared to be a fairly simple narrative between Good, the Lawrence family, and Evil, the five young men suspected of killing their son, William Macpherson introduced a new and far more complex character, institutional racism. Suddenly a term that most of Britain had never heard before was all over the nation's breakfast tables. In the past, to get a report written about the state of race relations in Britain, black people either had to take on the police or defend themselves against white thugs. But all black people did for this was literally and metaphorically die for it. Stephen Lawrence died for it. Rohit Dougal, Roland Adams, Michael Menson and many others died for it. The Lawrence family in their tireless campaigning through the dog years when the mainstream press had lost interest were dying for it. And the black community at large was dying for it. This was our Rodney King. At last, here was proof of what black people have been saying for years, that they had been falling foul not just of the law of the land, but the law of probabilities. Evidence that there is a persistent and consistent propensity to shove minorities to the bottom of every available pile and not only leave them there, but also blame them for being there. And it had the same effect on white opinion in Britain as a videotape of King's beating had on white America. In the face of incontrovertible evidence, white people were no longer able to ignore the deep-rooted and widespread nature of racism in British society, even if they wanted to. So, Macpherson raised the potential of racial debate in this country at a crucial moment, bringing both perception and understanding uh, of discrimination more closely in line with the reality of the black British experience. Previously, the predominant view in Britain had been that racism was a question not of, of not being nice to people uh, uh, who happened to be black. The view was that racists are impolite, nasty, poorly educated and badly brought up, and that combating racism was just about treating everyone the same. Anti-racism, it followed, was therefore about denying difference rather than embracing it. Its key determinant was not political, but behavioural. Macpherson dealt a severe blow to that misconception. By placing institutional racism at the heart of his report, he drew a direct link between the racist boot boys and the complacent pen pushers, between the black shirts and the blue helmets. The report charted a path from the crudest forms of racism to the most well-concealed. In short, it exposed the way in which racism affects all areas of black people's lives and infects the institutions we are all a part of. It shifted the focus of the debate from the individual to the institutional. It encompassed not just the obvious, but the abstruse as well. It showed that racism does not have one face, but many, and sometimes no face at all. Just because we are asking the right questions doesn't mean we are getting the right answers. <coughs> Young black people are still more than twice as likely to be unemployed as their white peers. Two-thirds of the Pakistani-Bangladeshi community are still among the poorest 20% of the country. Graduates of African descent in their 20s are seven times as likely to be unemployed as their white counterparts. The statistics go on forever but the grim reality they describe cannot. Macpherson has provided us with some sound foundations. We must wait and see what lasting structures will be built on them. And I think if we look at what's happened with the Metropolitan Police <laughs> since then, that kind of... Because um, they do keep going back to Macpherson. What we see was an institutional determination not to learn those lessons and not to build. And... Actually, it's drawn in, and this would be one good example where, on the one hand, one might argue things have remained the same. If you look at the reports of racism uh, in the Met and so on, um, um, but the issue has now broadened to its homophobia and its sexism and its misogyny as well. And so what was a conversation around... Uh, a very gendered conversation as well around black boys and the police now has the potential 
to be brought down and has sufficiently been brought down to have cost at least one police commissioner her job to kind of these people are not keeping us safe uh, and and it's a, it's a really good example of how what looks like a sectional interest oh that's black people going on about the police again but it's like well don't you want to be safe you know, if they do this to us what do you think they'll do to you if they could um, and you see once again and I could be a bit Pollyanna-ish about this but there is a potential for some serious solidarity work and some serious kind of um, coalition work amongst different demographic groups who all feel that this particular institution is not only not serving them, it's actually kind of acting against their interests. But just because there's a potential doesn't mean it will be realised. Actually, that is something that we have to do to make it real. Yeah, and I think also that potential being there at those moments tells you something about why, for the British right, the, the McPherson inquiry is this kind of, particularly, so I've recently been writing quite a lot about the police and reading a lot of ex-cops memoirs and actually enjoying it bizarrely, but um, <laughs> that's just, uh, it's probably said more about me. But, um, <laughs> but, but you know, for, for, there's, it, from, the, from the moment of that um, identifying of institutional racism in, in the McPherson report. It, there's a section of the right that treats that as this kind of original sin. You know, that explains, and, and you see this in the way that lots of ex-police officers talk about, like, what's gone wrong with, what's gone wrong with policing? And apart police officers who might themselves have experienced racism or sexism or homophobia have got a different take, but if, from, from my reading of, of, of what cops have to say about it themselves, it's, it's none of those things. It's that the McPherson inquiry kind of fatally hobbled policing. It kind of tied their hands behind their back, made them scared to arrest people because they were worried about being called racist. Actually, there's a bit in that piece that, at the time, I think you were right to identify it as such, but in retrospect, it's actually it turned out to be worse, which is at the time that seemed like kind of grumbling on the fringes of the right, but really, over the last 20 years, that's become a kind of major theme on the right, that it's, it's, you know, basically they are scared of the potential for coalition building. And so that's why they home in on these things. You've seen a repeat of that backlash and reaction with the, the responses to Black Lives Matter over the last mm. three years as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one thing I try with my work, and that would be a very good example, and that was before I was conscious about trying. I try not to be predictive. Because there is, this, there is this notion that some journalists have that it's their job to tell the future. And first of all, that's not their job, I think. And secondly, they're not very good at it. Um, I remember just coming back from the States and being at a function. It was 2015. Corbyn had just been elected leader of the Labour Party. And this woman said, Corbyn's lost the election. And I said, no, he just won the election. And she said, um, 2020. And I said, why are you talking about 2020 in the past tense? It's 2015. And she said, well, it's our job. She got incredibly condescending really quickly. Like, and I said, well, I'm not sure it is. I said, did, did you predict that he would win the Labour leadership? And he said, she said, no. And I said, did you predict that Cameron would win this election? And she said, no. And I said, well, so you're not very good at it then. <laughs> so maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should just concentrate on what you see. And, and there you see it kind of very cautious, like the structures are different. We'll have to wait and see if they're going to be built on it. That said, the one thing that I really feel like I misjudged, and it wasn't clear until after the uh, Brexit referendum, is that I thought that a set of attitudes around race were dying or dead. And in fact, they were just sleeping. Mm -hmm. And that some of the kind of retro, kind of old school bigotry that emerged, I, I kind of thought we're done with that. Not everybody, but as a current 
of opinion, I thought we'd done with that. And, and, uh, and I was wrong. Yeah, and I think, if I remember rightly, at one, at one point you, you wrote a column that was, the headline was something like, I've changed my mind about racism, which is where you were saying. Yeah, I think, yeah, it made it look like, I th- yeah, I think racism's good now. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they asked us to write something where we, we used to feel something and now we feel something else. And mine was, yeah, I changed my mind. I thought we were further ahead and that this stuff was embedded, but actually, really what happened was a lot of people shut up, which is great. If you're going to be racist, I'd rather you shut up than didn't shut up. But actually, even more rather that you kind of changed your mind and decided that there was a better way to go. This is just to sort of move the conversation on to slightly different territory, but I think that's something that kind of distinguishes your writing that a lot of other columnists don't do, is that you're, you're more willing to kind of change your mind in public or even express ambivalence about things. Um, and I just wonder whether, oh, first of all, do you see it like that? And also, that's just a kind of prompt to think about what like, the ingredients that go into your writing are. Like, um, I'm sure you had kind of like influences and inspirations when you started out, but are there still things that you feel like, you're, does your writing fit into a particular tradition, or are there writers you look up, sort of look up to who you were uh, trying to emulate? I mean, first of all, you know, I do evolve. It's much more interesting, actually, when... And it's kind of... It's really something where I think, oh, I, I was completely wrong about that. I thought this, and now I think... It's more like, yeah, I don't see it like that anymore. You know, I've... Like, I used to... The piece you're referring to, as a child I was raised, you never supported England. Nobody told you not to support England. You just didn't support it. You supported whoever England would play it. <laughs> and, um, and that was partly because of the kind of alienation that one felt to national identity and people kind of, you know, oh, it's really cold, isn't it? Not like where you come from. All of that. People either said, you're not British or you're only British. And there didn't seem a way to be more than one thing at once. Um, so there was that. And then there was also, and I know that England is a big place and not everybody did this, but the thing that it seemed that English people did with their sporting victories, that it wasn't, when they won, it wasn't just that they won a football match. It was the Battle of Agincourt. It was a bloody, you know, it was, it was kind of war. It was everything. And, um, you know, two world wars and one world cup, you know. It's like, you beat Belgium, you know, on penalties. And you're invoking both wars. So I didn't support England. And at a certain point, I had a bit more of a comfort with it. Partly, probably about being away, partly about the, the other thing, there were no black players in the England team until I would have been like, you know, 13 or 14, something like that. So, football culture had kind of calmed down a bit. I felt there was space to, 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 you know, to do that. And I think describing the way that one evolves, who'd want to be someone that just thought exactly the same thing 20 years ago that they did now? Like, it kind of, you know, Where's the fun in that? Um, and it's a kind of merciless terrain where, particularly with social media, where people will pounce on you and kind of they want it to be like you're right or you're wrong and you're this or you're that. But I always find more interest in the nuance, in the kind of, um, you know, I always say to people, if you're writing, if you're writing a column, and I used to do these long-form writing classes at the Guardian, I said, like, you're not going to write a column in defence of murder, because nobody agrees with murder. There has to be some kind of tension. Finding that place of tension and kind of really unpicking it, that was kind of, you know, that was my sweet spot, really. That's what I really enjoyed. And through the years, I can almost read pieces and think, oh, yeah, you were reading a lot of C.M.R. James then. <laughs> you know, and you know, you're reading a lot of Kapuscinski then, and um, and there were um, Rizal Kapuscinski, who wasn't really a columnist. He would go places where people weren't. That he would be an observer. That he would ride the bus when other people were taking the plane, kind of thing. And so, feeling like so, when I was in South Africa, and I don't think this is in the book, but there was a big religious ceremony. And I could have 
got a lift with someone, but I thought, I'll, no, I'll go on a minibus for like seven hours overnight with these religious folk. And that will give me something that I wouldn't have otherwise. I really got into the notion that if something was set up for the media, then you shouldn't be there. Like, it's the last place you want to be. Then you're just doing their job for them. And that went even to Obama's victory night. And I thought, well, the whole world's media is at Grand Park, where, you know, that beautiful scene where they walk out, black family taking a stroll. I just thought, there's, there's no need for me to be there. I can watch that on telly. And so I found a bar on the south side, which is where African Americans were called the President's Lounge, and I covered it from there. Which and I, I went there the night before, found a guy who was going to vote, went with him and voted, and kind of, I just thought there's some value I can add from here. Certainly, some of those styles would have come from people like Kapuscinski. And C.R. James is one of these people who could kind of, he was a Marxist, Trinidadian scholar and activist who could just make his analysis really sing. He wrote a wonderful book called The Black Jacobins, which I recommend to the room about the Haitian Revolution. Um, he wrote another one for those who are into cricket called Beyond the Boundary, which is about the role of cricket in Caribbean life. And, you know, he had several registers, and he would go from the high to the low, from Vanity Fair to the kind of cricket pitch and so on, and there was a kind of lyricism and a poetry about the way that he wrote. <clears throat> you have to be careful, though, when you try, you know, because you pick up this stuff, And then you have to let it go, because I'm not C.R. James, and I'm not Rizzo Kapuscinski, do you know what I mean? And, and you wouldn't want to be them anyway, you'd want to be yourself. So you kind of, there is a kind of metabol. you kind of have to metabolise these things and then move on. I think we should, we should open up to questions in a minute, but um, I know there was kind of one final area I wanted to ask you about, which sort of draws together some of the threads that have come up, which is... Is that a tension between feeling like, well, have things, have things got better or haven't they? And like, the, the kind of related question to that that I think overshadows that is like, well, do people have the power to change things or not? Mm. And, you know, like I was saying before, you're very good at kind of showing the moments when people can kind of burst through that media politics bubble and so on. Um, but you do have a kind of theory of change, to use a horrible phrase beneath that, that I think was really summed up in that final Guardian column that you wrote. And I... I wonder maybe if it's worth reading a bit of that just to just kind of end, end our sure. conversation. Um, so this this was the 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 last column, uh, and it came out. This becomes relevant right at the end. It was in um, January 2020, so the Tories won in 2019. It's called "In These Bleak Times: Imagine a World Where You Can Thrive." When I was a child, my mother used to put on the song Young, Gifted and Black by Bob and Marcia, put my feet on hers and then dance us both around the living room. They're playing our song, she'd say. It was the early 70s. She was barely 30. And I was the youngest of three children she was raising alone. Struggling to believe there was a viable future for her children in a country where racism was on the rise and the economy was in the tank, we danced around the living room, singing ourselves up, imagining a world in which we would thrive, for which we had no evidence that we did have great expectations. Much of the politics that has informed my writing in this space came from my mum. It's partly rooted in her experience. She came to Britain just a month after the Commonwealth Immigrants Act was passed. And she came because the then health minister, Enoch Powell, had embarked on a colossal program of NHS restructuring that required more nurses. She was living proof of the immigrants that the British economy needs, but that its political culture is too toxic to embrace. For her, sex, race and class were not abstract identities, but forces that converged to keep her wages low and her life stressful. But my politics is also rooted in what she made of those experiences. 
She was an anti-colonialist and an anti-racist, an internationalist and a humanist who would never have used any of those words to describe herself. Race-conscious as she was, most of her community activism, youth clubs, literacy classes, discos in the church hall, took place in the working-class white community. They were her people too. She made me stay up when I was 10 and watch the Holocaust miniseries, which freaked me out, <laughs> and took me to watch Gandhi when I was 13, which was way too long. <laughs> Both times she told me, this is your story too. She believed the world she wanted to create was never going to come to her, so she would have to take the fight to it. I saw her confront the local National Front candidate, the police, and her union, to name but a few. She took me on my first rally, helped the aged, when I was four, my first demonstration, CND, when I was 14, and my first picket, the South African Embassy, when I was 17. Even in her sudden and untimely death, there were valuable lessons. The life is too short to waste on people you don't care about, but long enough to make a difference if you want to. She was 44. I was 19. She never got to read my columns. I think my presence on these pages would have been as unlikely to her as anything else she hoped I might achieve as a child as we padded around the living room. I sign off from this column at a dispiriting time. With racism, cynicism and intolerance on the rise, wages stagnant and faith that progressive change is possible, is possible all declining, even as resistance grows. Things look bleak. The propensity to despair is strong but should not be indulged. Sing yourself up. Imagine a world in which you might thrive, for which there is no evidence. And then... Thanks. Um, I think we have some time for audience questions. So does anybody have one they would like to ask? There's uh, a really quick question about um, Obama. I've read something that Biden's been a bit more radical. What do you feel about that? Uh, he has been, I mean, he has been more radical. Um, and I think he's been more radical because he's had to be. I think that people in power do what they have to do, you know. And um, uh, I thought it was odd with Obama when people would say, well, he should do more of this and he should do more of that. And I'd say, well, okay, he should, you're right. But he can't be the left opposition to himself. There's no movement making him do these things. When Obama, when, when, when Obama stood, he, he fought Hillary. When Biden stood, he was fighting off Bernie Sanders. So his challenge was coming from the left. And he was standing during a massive explosion with Black Lives Matter. And so it, it, it shows the degree to which um, what we do on the ground makes a, makes a difference. Uh, because when... When Obama stood, people like stood and watched. Like this is wonderful, and it's like, yeah. But when he stops running, you have to keep going because otherwise, like, all of the pressure is going to come from the business interests and the corporate interests and so on, and that's what happened. So Biden, and because Biden's history is way to the right of Obama's and way. But he, you know, he did what he had to do to kind of please the constituencies that he had to please. And, um, and thank God they have been active um, uh, in this moment. And my question kind of relates to what you said about Obama and um, how he was a symbol and symbolism attached to him, but also um, to the fact that many conversations are taking place but not necessarily um, translated into action and change. And to just illustrate that, um, when Obama was elected, my daughter who was probably about nine at the time. I remember her reaction to it. She sat in the back of the car and she sort of went, wow, that's great. Nobody's going to mess with me. And I sort of looked at her and thought, gosh, where did that come from? What does that mean? It was incredibly powerful. And then fast forward to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when there were stories that came out about Asian and black people trying to get on trains mm -hmm. to escape. She then turned to me, now she's about 22, so she said to me, Mum, do you think that could happen here? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that um, 
we build our sense of possibility from what we see other people doing from what's around us, you know, that our sense of what what could happen um, is is um, is embedded in what we see happen and our sense of possibility is um, is wedded to the things we know to be possible. Which is why part of what I was doing there in that last piece when I say just imagine like imagine a world for which there's no evidence is that I'm really keen on actually trying to imagine a world that you can't see uh, of being a utopian thinker and just imagine for a moment that Martin Luther King got to the top of the Lincoln steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said I have a ten point plan <laughs> so I have a dream right? and he didn't and he said I've got a dream and then he, he built this image of a world um, um, that was so far from the reality I mean, within a couple of weeks, the four little girls would be firebombed in Birmingham while they were at Sunday school. But sometimes, actually, it's, you can't be dreaming all the time. You've got to wake up. Imagine the world that you actually want to live in, as opposed to the next possible thing, I think is, is actually re really important for my sanity, as much as anything else. Uh, and why I, would, I think I would make a really terrible politician. <laughs> Well, I think we need to wrap up now. I just so I'll just very quickly say thank you to New Bookshop for mm. organising the event. Uh, thank you to all of you for coming uh, for this, this fascinating conversation we've had this evening, and thanks most of all to Gary Young. You've been listening to a podcast supported by Open Democracy. If you liked it, please consider making a small donation to help us do more. As a small media organisation. Open Democracy relies on the backing of people like you to keep going. Go to opendemocracy.net now to support our work. And one more thing, to avoid missing out on future episodes, don't forget to subscribe to this show in your favourite podcast app.